Father God, I thank you for the youth that we have here and for sending us a youth pastor, Brother Sam. I pray, Lord, for your hands of protection around him and around his family and that you would guide his ministry in the direction that that it needs to go so that we can reach the, the, the youth group, Father, the future of our church. And Father, just because they're youth now and because we call them the future does not mean, Lord, that you can't use them now and here. And I pray, Lord, that you would just raise up leaders in the youth group like you have with Aiden and that you would continue to raise up more leaders and give Sam more help, Father. And what we pray for our church, Lord, is that we can bring in young people so that we can minister, Lord, to the next generation and raise them up to follow Christ and take a stand for you, God, because you want us to take a stand for you. You don't need us, Lord, but you want us. And we thank you for that. And we want to stand up for you and stand up for your name and for your morals that you've given us and for your laws. And we just pray that you would just do a work here in our church, Lord. Continue to work in our praise band. Be with Sandy as she's sick, Lord. I thank you for healing Miss Betty and for being uh, with Lisa this week. I pray, Lord, that as Brother Kyle's preaching this morning, that you would anoint him, Father. Anoint our pastor this morning. Put word, the words that you want to come out of his mouth in him today, Lord. Anoint him, Father, with your spirit and use him as a vessel this morning. I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody here, Lord, that is not saved, that today they would give their heart and their life to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would revive us and that you would continue to do a work here. And we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm going to tell you, I've been hearing how great the revival was. One of my biggest fears this morning is that you mugs done got revived, and I got to come up in here this morning after laying in a hospital bed all week. But I want to tell you, I personally, honestly believe God had me right where he wanted me to be, not only for my life, but for the life of the church. And uh, I may talk about that maybe some more down the road. But today, if you got your Bible, I want to ask you, we're going to primarily preach out of 1 Samuel chapter 1. But we're going to use 1 Peter chapter 4 as an introduction to the message to kind of get us going in the direction that I want us to go. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 and we'll read and pray and then we'll dig in and see what God has to say this morning. But I don't know about you, but as I walk with the Lord, the longer I'm with him, the harder it is for me to figure him out sometimes. And he doesn't do things the way we would like him to do. But anything that happens in a Christian's life who has a desire to follow Jesus is never an accident. It's always allowed, caused, and made to happen by the providential sovereignty of God. And so we need to understand that in our life, sickness, suffering, troubles have a purpose. (laughs) And that purpose is not to hurt us, it is to help us. And as you look with me this morning here, I want to talk about suffering and the will of God. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 4, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. He's saying, prepare yourselves also with the same mind. He's saying, the same attitude. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
And I want to ask you this morning, what do you think is the most common denominator? What is the chief influencer that motivates people to get serious about the will of God? It ain't your love of God. After me and my personal life of 25 years, a little over that being a Christian, but serving him as a pastor, I've observed and I've watched, and it's overwhelmingly, majority of the time, the people that are the most serious about the will of God has suffered something. They've they've went through a valley. A valley that only God can get you through. And they suffered through it, and it didn't turn them from God, it brought them to God, and they came out better for it, and now they're no longer like most Christians, casually, comfortably sit in the pew and be carnal. They want to be spiritual. They want to be part of the kingdom work. They want to be a part of the agenda of God, and they're in the midst of Bringing the kingdom agenda to be real in their life. I I overwhelmingly see that, just like he says right here, for he who has suffered in the flesh, he ceased from sin. And he says, and he no longer should be, live the rest of his time here on earth for the flesh, for himself, but because he's experienced God through a great trial, a great struggle, and seen what God can do, now he wants to live for the will of God. Of God. This song is written by a Southern Gospel group. Now I'm joking. Jars of Clay. This song helped me a long time ago at my other church. I found it then. And it's a song called The Valley Song. It's written by Jars of Clay. And just the other day, God put that song in my heart and in my mind. I Googled it and listened to it a couple times. I had that going. It was almost as if God was preparing me for the valley. Isn't it wonderful that God never takes us anywhere, that he doesn't go with us? That he never allows any burden to be on us, that he doesn't help us to carry? Now, he'll put a burden on you that you can't carry, but he'll never give you a burden that he won't help you carry it. And that song, I will sing of your mercy that leads me through valleys of sorrow to rivers of joy. I don't know about you, but have you figured out that to get to the bank of the rivers of joy... Most of the time, you've had to go through the valley of sorrow to get there. And today, if you can sit unrevived, comfortable that way, carnal, a complacent Christian, you're more spiritually sick than I am physically sick, I'm here to tell you. You're in worse trouble than I'll ever be in. Because the worst thing you can ever do is be a Christian and never, ever accomplish the will of God in your life. Say, what is the will of God? I don't know specifically. He's got a specific will for everybody. But I can tell you, for the specific will to be accomplished in your life, you've got to accept the universal will for every one of us. And I'm going to tell you what it is. It's not hard to figure out, as you think. The will of God is for every one of us to believe in his son and to accept him as our savior. And he wants Jesus, his son, to be your savior. And you do that simply by believing in him, trusting him, and saying, Jesus, save me. He'll save you. But that's just the start. The will of God for every one of you in here who's truly born again is not to go to church and casually sit in a pew, hear a sermon, and go home. The will of God for every one of us is to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow Jesus. Because until you follow Jesus and let Jesus have the authority and control of your life, you're never going to accomplish the will of God. So he wants us to follow Jesus and make him Lord. And I found that many of us like to make him Savior, but me, I don't always like to make him Lord. But he is Lord. And the wonderful thing 
is that God has a plan and a purpose for every one of us that is a thing of beauty that not only blesses us but brings glory to his name, but sometimes to get our attention, to get us to the right place where he can work that out in our lives, he has to cause something to happen to us to break us. Because I want you to listen to this with me this morning as I read from some scriptures. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, this is what the Bible says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. That's like nowhere we've ever been. And this is what he says, I dwell with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What does that mean? contrite if I look up in the Holman Bible dictionary the word contrite according to that dictionary says to be humbled and repentant before God crushed by the sense of guilt and sinfulness it says this Old Testament concept expressed by the Hebrew language basically means to be crushed or beaten to pieces so that's what he's talking about the contrite spirit the contrite heart That word contrite in the Hebrew is the same word that's used in Isaiah 53 when it says Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. It says he was beaten in some translations for our iniquities while he was on the cross. That's the kind of spirit, a spirit Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the person who realizes that he's spiritually bankrupt, that without Christ he can do nothing but that with Christ I can do all things. And he's broken. He's got that contrite spirit that Jesus says in his word, I will live with. And guys, listen, humility is a necessity to receive grace because God said that blessed, he he will bless the humble, he'll give grace to the humble, but he'll resist the proud. And friends, if you look in the Bible, there's lots of examples of it. Matthew 18, 4 Jesus said this, therefore whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. The greatest people in the kingdom of God are the humblest people. And then he says in 2 Chronicles, the, 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 the prayer that everyone knows is the prerequisite that you've got to get your heart filled with this before her arrival comes is if my people will humble themselves. That's the first thing. Then pray. Then seek my face. Then turn from their wicked ways that I might open the windows of heaven. Friends, humble people are the people that God uses. A humble person is a person that's been broken. The Bible says it's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And then it says this about Moses. And you can be turning with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I must give you an example. This is what the Word of God says about Moses. Now the man Moses was very humble more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. But Moses was not always humble. What's the opposite of being humble before God? Doing it in yourself. Being self-reliant and self-dependent and being able to do it without God, your way instead of his way. Moses was called, he was a divine baby that God allowed to live when all the other Hebrew babies were being killed. His mother seen he was a beautiful child, We know the story. She put him in a basket. She floated him down the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter found him, and he was taken in and adopted and became the adopted son of the princess of 
Egypt and he was raised in the palace with all of that benefits that you would think would have helped him to be the deliverer of his people, the Hebrew people. But at 40 years of age, he began to realize he was a Hebrew. He goes out, he sees one of his Hebrew brethren being mistreated, and what does Moses do? He killed him. (laughs) He traded in his strength. And he hid the body, but he went back and it got out. God allowed it to be revealed. And he found out Pharaoh was going to kill him. So Moses, who lived his life in the palace with all of those luxuries and benefits, ran to the wilderness. And he's running. I promise he doesn't know where he was going, probably. And he shows up at a well filled with shepherd women, daughters of a man named Jephro. And he helps them. Jephro takes him in, gives him one of his daughters as a wife, and for 40 years, God kept Moses in the wilderness working for his father-in-law. That'll humble you. (laughs) And after 40 more years out there in the wilderness, no longer in the palace, he took him from the palace to the pasture. (laughs) And he stuck him out there in the middle of nowhere. We'd all forgot about Moses. We'd all said, how is Moses ever going to serve God? He had Moses right where he wanted Moses. And he was humbling Moses. He was breaking Moses. When Moses got to the point in his spiritual maturity and ability to serve him, he told Moses at a burning bush, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You know what Moses said then? He didn't go try to do it by force. He said, I can't do it. I can't do anything. (laughs) And when you get to the point you understand you can't do anything for God on your own, you're entering into the place where he can use you. And I found in my life, And as I observe in the life of people in the church, most of the people who are the greatest and most faithful and fruitful, and when you're around them, the kingdom of God is the center of their life, has went through something like Moses. They've went through a valley. They've suffered, and they've come out for it better at the end. You see, look at Brother Kyle. He's an amazing man. Brother Kyle wasn't always like he is now. He wasn't sold out to win souls. He wasn't worried about preaching the word of God till after he went through the valley of his wife committing suicide. And he'll tell you, you heard him here and he came the first time. He came to a point that he was either going to leave God or he had to go all into God or he wasn't going to make it. There's people in our church like that. I look at Brother Richard. Brother Richard hasn't always been like he is. He's told me himself. One of the most difficult things that his family's ever went through was when he lost his son, Patrick. But today, Brother Richard's all in, amen? And if you're around him, he's so humble. I'm glad he's humble because he's so big. (laughs) And there's a lot of things I love about Brother Richard. He can fix anything I break, and he does it quite a bit for me. And he'll help you. He helps. So many of you have been helped by his generosity to work on your junk that you broke. But you know, one of my favorite things about Brother Richard is he went through a valley of sorrow, but he ain't in it no more. When you're around him, he's jovial. He's got my favorite laugh I might have ever heard. If you ever hear Brother Richard do a belly laugh, I could be in a room of a hundred laughers and I'd find Richard. And I love to be around him because he laughs all the time. I don't know if I'm that funny or he's just that happy. But there's more you in here. I know Miss Patty went through a serious valley when she had her accident in the fire but she's come out now I see a desire in her life and there's many others Sam you may not know this 
You don't find many 20-year-olds that want to live and serve the Lord. And he had a terrible thing in his life you may have not heard yet. He lost his father to an unexpected accident taken from him one day. It didn't turn him from God. If you go and hang out with him, you'll find out it turned him to God. And now he's serving the Lord. He's our youth pastor. There's an example here that I want us to look at from a young woman who was married named Hannah. The greatest thing that you could do for your husband in her day was to give him a son to carry on his name. But Hannah was barren. The Lord had shut her womb. And as you're going to see, apparently she was the first wife. She's definitely the wife that he loved the most. And even though she was barren, even though she couldn't give him a wife, Elkanah, her husband, still loved her. But he didn't love her enough that he didn't accept not having a son. He took another wife named Penina. And she started having kids like this. She had at least four, you're going to see in the scripture. She had sons and daughters. And the years went by, and she lived in the house, and she stayed barren. Let me tell you why it was so important that she give her husband a son. Because a Hebrew man's posterity was bound up in his having a son to perpetuate and carry on his name. His wife's inability to conceive a son was regarded as a curse from God from the Israelites. According to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, having children was a sign of God's blessing. Therefore, the Israelites in their culture in that time considered the inability to bear children as a curse. But even in Hannah's barrenness, it did not stop Elkanah's love for her. But he didn't love her enough that he didn't take another wife. It was never God's plan, although it was allowed at this time, to have multiple wives. Because everywhere you read in the Bible where there's multiple wives and multiple children from different wives, there's things in that household that God doesn't intend to be there. Jealousy, envy, people doing each other wrong. And if you look here with me, we're going to read, and we're going to dig into this. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathim, Sophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And that's how you say it. I looked it up. There's a thing. I want to tell y'all, if y'all have trouble with words like me, I don't have to name them Bubba no more. I just, you can Google, how do you pronounce Penina? And it'll come up. You can hit a button and you can listen to it on your iPhone. Pretty cool. I've been listening to a lot of Old Testament words here lately. So Penina, old Penina, had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. That's at the temple. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons. So she had at least two, and daughters she had at least two. But to Hannah he would give a double portion. He gave her even more to give to the Lord. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. 
Can you imagine year after year? I don't know how long it took her to have all them sons and daughters. But here she is, she's barren, and boy, Nina's having kids one after another. And it's obvious that the Lord has closed her womb. That's a valley of sorrow for a wife who wants to honor her husband who loves her, who cherishes her. And to make matters worse, to add insult to injury, Penina wasn't a sister. <laughs> she was a rival wife. She used the advantage that I'm giving him a namesake to torment poor Hannah. Look at what it says. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. She taunted her with her kids. She reminded her probably every day, you can't even give him a child. And she was probably jealous that she was his favorite. Most of the commentators that I study believe that he married um, Hannah because he loved her. She was probably his first wife. He married Penina because he wanted children. And I want you to think about this. Verse 7, so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and she did not eat. Now, this is up here at the yearly sacrifice. It was the once a year celebration where you went to the temple and you went to the priest and you gave an offering and it was like Christmas. It was the biggest celebration of the year because you was going to give the Lord your sin offering and to, to worship. And it was a time of celebration like at Christmas, everyone's eating and celebrating the birth of Jesus and the spiritual reality of what that means. But sometimes at Christmas, you can have bitterness of soul. You can have sorrow that overwhelms you and robs you from the celebration. That's what's happening to her. And look at Elkanah loves her and he recognizes it. In verse 8, he says, then Elkanah, her husband, says to her, Hannah, do you, why do you weep? We're here to celebrate. Why do you not eat even? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I love you without children. I give you a double portion to give to the Lord. And so Anna arose from the table where they were all gathered together as a family, which meant Elkanah, her husband, Panina, and all her children. And she got to the point where she finally was broken that she was brought to the port of bitterness in her soul, that she wept with such anguish that she finally, I'm sure she prayed before, but she never prayed like we're fixing to see. She cried out to the Lord. She laid her soul out to the Lord. Listen to what it says in verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. She went to the tabernacle. That's where the presence of God was. And look at what it says in verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord, if you will indeed look on my affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a man-child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. When she said no razor, I'm going to consecrate him to the Lord. I'm going to raise him as a Nazarite, a holy man, a man whose whole life is centered on the will of God and the kingdom of God to work and serve God. If you'll give me one son, I'll give him back to you, God. 
Penina's got many sons. She ain't got no desire to give them to God. Kind of reminds me of the father. She said, if you'll just give me one son, I'll give him up for the kingdom. God only had one son. His name was Jesus. And he gave him up so that we might be in the kingdom. And the Bible says that the author and finish of our faith, we're to look to, looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he's went through that valley of suffering and he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Friends, I want you to understand something. No cross, no crown. If you don't want to suffer for God, you're never going to experience the glory of God. And I've found out that in suffering, burdens are birthed that breed blessings that you can't get anywhere else. And I've watched it and I've seen it. And I look at this lady and I can so identify with her this week. And it says that then she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your maid servant. Most of us don't serve God and commit to God primarily motivated by your love for God. You know what makes us serious about doing the word of God? Same thing made David serious. Affliction. You see, we got it in our head. We got a lot of truth. We got a lot of spiritual and scriptural understanding. But it can be in your head and you'll never do it. Somehow God's got to get it from your head into your heart. Because it's not till it gets in your heart that you'll do it. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 119, one of my favorite psalms, it's the longest psalm if you're going to read it. There's many things in it. But one of the things you see, one of the themes, David asked it in the beginning of the psalm, verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? And David knew the answer in his head by taking heed according to your word. If you want to live a clean life, take heed. Live according to his word. And then in verse 11, three verses down, he says, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You can have it in your head and you'll still sin against God. But when God gets it from your head and puts it into your heart, you're a new animal, my friend. <laughs> As churches are filled with Christians full of head knowledge, but they ain't got hearts sold out to God. Well, what made David sell out? When you get down to verse 67, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Did you hear what he said? Before God, I was afflicted, I went astray. What does it mean to go astray? Do what you want to do. Go where you want to go. Be what you want to be instead of what God wants you to be and do. How many of us can say, Oh, boy, this is getting to be kind of personal but then he says in three verses down it's good for me that i have been afflicted that i may learn your statutes they'll nothing make you seek to learn the statutes and the principles and the truths that's in this book more than affliction at least it's true in my life it changed the course of a young man at 12 years old who got saved named kyle williams and it made him begin to say it's more to this christianity than what i've been doing and I believe it's happened to some of you probably. It's happened to me. The worst thing that's ever happened to me birthed and caused the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. When Diane left me, 
when she said, I can't live this way anymore, I love you, but I'm leaving. I never thought she'd leave. When I come home, she was gone. The grief of that divorce that I didn't want broke me more than anything ever in my life. Consumed me. It brought me to a place of despair, a place of affliction. But out of that valley that we went through, she got saved, I got saved, and the joy of our marriage can never compare to the eight years before Jesus showed up in our home. Would I have come to Christ if Diane would have never left me? Would she have come to Christ if she'd accepted the ungodly life that we was living in the bondage that we... No, thank God that somehow God stirred her heart to say, I'm not living this way. She didn't know she was going to find Jesus, but Jesus knew she was coming. And he met her in that valley and he saved her. Then he sent her back to get me. (laughs) And he pulled me out of that valley. I don't know about y'all, I know what it's like to sing of the mercies that lead me through valleys of sorrow to the rivers of joy. And friends, I don't know about y'all, but this girl here is fixing to see the glory of God all happened in this little boy's life because he was given to the kingdom to serve the king. And God's fixing to use a young man named Samuel to accomplish his will. You see... Intellectual awareness is just attained truth. It's information. That's all it is. God wants the intellectual awareness of what you know about him and what you've heard from his word, the truth that you've been able to attain to be more than information. He wants you to apply that truth. He wants you to give it practical application because that's what brings transformation. This book ain't for entertainment. It ain't just to read. It ain't just for information. It's given to you to make you like him, the author. And friends, listen to this. This lady keeps her vow. This is an amazing thing. She got this kid, and now she's got him and she's nursing him. And the first year comes up, and it's time to go back to the temple where she made a vow to God. If you'll give me this child. And I want you to look at what happens. It says in verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord. That Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. Now he's the the, the high priest. So Eli says to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. He's probably saying, get out of the church. You don't come into church drunk. (laughs) This is the temple. And listen to what she tells him. Do not consider. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. She poured out her soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant wicked, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And so Eli blesses her. Look at what he says. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And look at what it says. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then you rose, they rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. I bet you that was the first time she worshiped before the Lord in a long time. Notice she didn't have to wait till she got the child. She got set free from the bondage in the valley the moment She entrusted it to God. 
Some of you have sorrow in your life today that's not there because of the devil. It's there because of God. And it can be removed the moment you give it back to God. She said, I poured out my soul unto the Lord. I laid down my griefs and my complaint to the Lord. If you're going to complain, complain to Jesus. Amen. And friends, she went back and she sat back in her family and she worshiped the Lord. Now she goes back home and look at the faithfulness of God. And Elkanah Verse 19, then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, that means heard by God, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow but Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband not until the child is weaned then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever they said that back in that day that they nursed children to the age of three years old she had that boy all that time she nursed him her firstborn Samuel blessed Samuel and Three years in, she goes and she takes her a a bull for a sacrifice. She goes back to the temple, if you read it. And she goes up to Eli, the high priest. And she tells him, you can look with me right here. In verse 27. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition, which I asked. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. And look, she's no longer sorrow. She's no longer in anguish. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, So Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, my strength, that means, is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. I bet she was giving old Penina a smile now. She gives that boy to the Lord. Why would she give something like that to the Lord? Look at the last part of verse 1. Because I rejoice in your salvation, God. If God saved you, he could never ask too much for what you owe him. He would never, ever exceed what he deserves of us to sacrifice and give. This woman left that little boy that day after three years probably of nursing him. She weaned him and left him to be a priest in the temple. Now, guys, that's not the end of the story. That's an extraordinary victory right there and unbelievable. But I want you to understand it costs something to be involved in the kingdom. It costs a church to be more than a church. It costs a church to be a church that's actually part of the kingdom agenda and accomplishing the purposes of God. And friends, if you look right here, when you get to chapter 3, verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. She left him. Look what begins to happen in verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child 
wearing a linen ephod, that's the priestly robe. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And she's come back, and a couple years later, Eli must have noticed she ain't got another child. The high priest is looking, and look at what happens here. This is cool. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard everything. I'm sorry, wrong verse. I'll find it in a minute. Verse 20, and Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And look at verse 21. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. But meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature in favor both with the Lord and men. When you get to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. Guys, I want you to think about this. No one would want to go through what she went through. Years and years of being barren and not able to produce an heir to carry on the name of the husband who loved you. And the torment of a wife who's your rival, who's having kids like this, and she's using them to cause you harm. But you know what? I was thinking, if Hannah would have just had kids normally, and God would have just had her womb open, And Nina would have her child. I'll have one. She's got two. I'm going for three. Do you think she'd ever gave one to the Lord? Penina's got an abundance. Her her children are never mentioned in the Word of God by name. But how many of you have heard of Samuel before? Samuel became one of the greatest prophets in the whole Word of God. Because he was submitted, surrendered, consecrated, and given over for nothing more than to serve God. All of that came out of that valley of sorrow. And now I want you to see what's going to happen as we get to see the banks of the rivers of joy. Samuel lives with Eli. And Eli, if you go read all this later, it'll make more sense to you, was the high priest. But he had two sons who were priests, and they was ungodly. They were corrupt. And God decided, I'm removing them and Eli. I'm taking them out. From the priest, because now I got me another priest. Guess who that was? Samuel. Samuel was the last judge from the era of the judges. He was a prophet and a priest. And so he gives Eli a word. I mean, Samuel a word. And that word is for Eli. They're laying in the temple one night, late after the lamps have went out. And Samuel hears the Lord say, Samuel. Samuel. He thinks it's Eli. He goes to Eli. You can read it when you get home. We ain't got time for that right now. And Eli says, what? I didn't call you. He said, surely you called me. You called. He said, go lay back down. He lays back down. And the Lord says, Samuel. Samuel. How many of you have read this before? It's so cool. He goes back again. Eli was so far from God that God wasn't speaking to Eli no more. You ever been there? He had to use a little boy to give the message to the high priest. But Eli knew enough about God that he figured out that that was God calling him. So he says, go back, lay down, and when he calls you, say, speak, for thy servant is listening. (laughs) Are you listening to God's voice this morning? Do you really want God to have his way 
to overrule your way, that could be why you don't hear much from him. Are you broken? Do you have a spirit that's yielding to the plan of God or do you already have your plan and you just want God to bless it? Because it don't work that way in the kingdom of God. And so Eli calls out and God tells him, I'm fixing to do something that if it was known, it would make the ears of Israel tingle. You know what he said he was fixing to do? I'm going to kill Hophni and Eli and sacrifice is no longer going to be able to atone for Eli and his family's sins. He goes, lays down, he's scared. Man, if I tell Eli this, he ain't going to be happy. There ain't a preacher ever been given a message that he was saying, if I preach this, they ain't going to like this. If I go tell them this, Lord, I might not be around much longer. But if you're going to be a prophet of God, and you're going to get a word from God, you've got to be able to speak the word of God. And he comes to him. And I want you to see this. It says, so Samuel in verse 15, he laid down until morning and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. And Eli called Samuel and he said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. He ain't heard from God in a long time. He knew God was talking to Samuel and he knew it was about him. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me. Of all the things that God said to you, so Samuel told him everything. He hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And I want you to see what happens. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. What came out of the mouth of Samuel entered into the hearts of God's people. It wasn't wasted. And he spoke for God all the rest of the years of his life. And it says in verse 20, And all of Israel, from Dan, the northernmost part, to Bathsheba, the southernmost part, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh. He hadn't revealed himself to Eli for a long time. Flip back to verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now the boy Eli... The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation, but them days is over now. God's got him a prophet. God's got him a holy man. God's got him somebody now that will run the kingdom his way. And look at what it says. Boy, what a testimony. Can you imagine Hannah and the joy she must have got from seeing the godly man Samuel came? It was Samuel who anointed the first king, Saul. It was Samuel when Saul messed up and God took the kingship from him, went and told him that God has taken the kingship from you. For now he has a king who will do the things of his heart. And your anointing is gone. And he was the one who got to go find a man named Jesse. And Samuel was the one who said, we'll not eat till I see the Lord's anointed. Bring your sons. And he looked through them all. And he looked through them all. And every time Samuel would say, certainly he must be, he must be. And the Lord said, no, that's not him. He was that in tune with God. Then he said, There's, do you have any more sons? I only got one. He's the youngest. He's out there with the sheep. Go get him. Because we're not eating and celebrating the sacrifice till I see him. As soon as David, David, the precursor, the prerequisite of Christ, the heir of Jesus shows up. 
The Lord said, that is him. Samuel poured his horn of oil on him. And the Lord got on David. And David broke and changed history for the world. Because that's how God works. He takes common people that are broken. That are surrendered to him. And he uses them. And every time I look around and I see people that I see, God's on that man. God's, that woman's full of Jesus. They're sold out. They, they have the anointing of God. When you get to know them, somewhere they went through a valley. You might be in a valley right now, but I'm here to tell you on the other side of that valley is the bank of the rivers of joy. You just got to keep holding on to Jesus because Jesus is holding on to you, and one day you come out. You know, I don't know how long this valley's going to last, but my hope ain't in them surgeons. My hope ain't in them doctors. I thank God for them. I praise him. He's going to give me the money to pay them. I'm going to get it done if that's what God wants. But I'm going to tell you what. If none of that works and I die tomorrow, I'm one day going to stand on a riverbank. I'm going to cross over to Jordan. I'm going into the land of milk and honey. I'm going to be with God and I'm going to be healed completely. And I won't never look back again. Amen. I don't know where you're bound for, but I'm heaven bound, glory bound. Friends, no matter what we go through here, Paul said the sufferings of this present time cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed into the sons of God. We're so caught up in here. We're so focused on, focused on the now that we forgot about our future. You know what keeps a Christian going? Heaven. Seeing Jesus. You know what a Christian's chief purpose for still being here is? To serve that kingdom and to serve him, our king. You know what the Bible said about Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus, though he was God in the flesh, humbled himself and became a man. And he humbled himself even to the point of the cross. And because he did that, the Bible says that the Father has exalted him and given him the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. But you know what? Jesus had to fight the battle we fight. He suffered. Do you remember in Gethsemane? He didn't want to take that cup of sorrow. He didn't want to drink that bitter cup. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, Please let this pass. Lord, if, if there's any other thing that can be done to accomplish it, please let it be. He was burdened. He was hurt to the point that he bred, he bled drops of blood from the anguish. But yet Jesus said, but not my will, but thy will be done. And friends, when Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach us to pray, Jesus said, pray in this manner. He didn't say, give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> that wasn't the first thing that Jesus said we need to ask for. But the majority of our praying is for the daily bread. <laughs> give us what we need, Lord. Give us what we want for right now. But Jesus said this, pray in this manner. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken, the contrite, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is the most important thing in your life? 
I don't know about y'all. Y'all was. <laughs> I had y'all lifted a little higher than I should have been. And I was laying in that bed feeling sorry for myself. I can't believe I can't be there for the revival. God showed me this week, you didn't need to be in a successful revival. You didn't need more good church. You needed more of me. About three days in, I thought I was going to get to get out Wednesday. And I, Diane was saying, you can't go to church. I was coming. <laughs> God shut that down. I was doing good Tuesday. Wednesday, I was sick as I was when I got there. So, and God kept me out of that revival. And I asked him why. And the best of my ability is I'm a task-oriented person. I want to accomplish something to feel that I've done something. I, it's what happens with y'all that feeds my satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose in my life, sometimes more than it should. But you know what? If the preacher is more concerned about the church than he is Jesus, he's in trouble. <laughs> but sometimes I worry about y'all because it seems like some of y'all trust me sometimes more than Jesus. So you know what he did? He kind of showed us both. You don't need the preacher to have revival. You only need me. And he said, Marvin, you don't need that church to make you get where you need to be. And he moved me along and worked in my heart. See, God works in our hearts however he needs. And sooner or later, if you want to follow him, you'll find yourself in the valley of sorrow. You know, that's the chorus to that song. I'm going to close with just telling you the first verse. He said, you have led me to this sadness, I have carried this pain on a back bruise, barely broken, but I'm crying out to you. When's the last time something broke your back? When's the last time you cried out to God with all your heart, with a spirit of contrition? I'm not worthy of your help. I'm not worthy to be your child, but Lord, help me. I don't deserve it. But Lord, I'm coming to you with all that I've got. And you know what they wrote the next verse is the chorus. I will sing of your mercy that leads me through valleys of sorrow to rivers of joy. For everyone in this room, if you belong to God, no matter what you may go through, on the other side of the valley, the rivers of joy are always waiting. That's a promise from God. You know what makes the rivers of joy so joyful and so wonderful? Because the valleys are tough and difficult. Out of all the things of heaven, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to see Jesus. But the next thing, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to be in a place where there's no suffering, no shame, no more anything. There's going to come a time in eternity when Jesus is going to take every one of us, He's going to wipe away our tears. And we'll never cry again. We'll never hurt again. We'll never suffer again. But along the way, we've got to suffer for His glory sometimes. And it's worth it. Can I get an amen? This morning, it's a difficult thing to give your heart to Jesus and be saved. If it was easy, many more people would be saved. And I believe in every service, lost people sit and leave lost. Today, I'm going to just ask you, if you're not saved today, Jesus wants to be your Savior. It's God's plan, the Father, for you, He would be your Savior. And if you'll just come today and say, Lord, I, I, I need 
to be saved with a broken spirit, with a contrite heart, that, Lord, I'm a sinner. He'll save you. And for everybody else in this room this morning, are you really following Jesus? Does that involve denying yourself, your agenda, and taking up the cross, His agenda, and following the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's His plan for everybody. And boy, how quick can we get our own agendas and come up with our own plans? I don't know about y'all, but right now, I don't know what my future holds, but I know who I'm looking to, the Lord. So I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation. I don't know if this spoke to you. I'm just sharing how God spoke to me. But I'm here to tell you that God loves you. He'll save you. I don't know what the devil's telling you, why you can't be saved, or you don't deserve it. You never will. But you can be saved today if you want to, and I'm asking you to come and give the Lord glory and publicly profess Jesus as your Savior. For those of us who are saved, If you ever want to get to those rivers of joy, you're going to have to let Jesus have control of your life. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to open the altar, and we're going to just see what God wants to do with us this morning. Amen? Father, this is your time. This is where you draw your people to yourself. This is when you open the eyes of those who are blind, who are in darkness, and you bring them to your light. So Jesus, for the lost right now, who's undone, who's a breath away from hell, I pray today that this would be the day of their salvation. That you'd give them grace to leave, to come out, and to come to you. Just to walk an aisle and say, I have come to give Jesus my life. Let him be my Savior. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to have a motivation to follow you and to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
And there's nothing the world has that can compare to having him and being in his will. The will of God. We ponder it, we talk about it, but it's really not that hard to figure out. If you follow Jesus as best you can, and you continue to look to him, and when you mess up, you ask him to forgive you, you stay close to God, and you let him teach, let him have authority of your life. If you follow Jesus, you will not live outside the will of God. Jesus will bring you right to the center. But it's going to involve some things. You've got to give up self. And friends, that's a hard thing to do. Amen. We love self way too much. Well, God bless you. I hope this was a blessing. I want to thank everybody who's prayed for me. Please continue to pray. What happened to your foot? Gary, you kicked him? All right. Well, anyway, I think Bud, he come asking me, and I surely ain't going to turn down no prayer. If it would be all right if the men of the church, and I'm good with anybody who wants to come and pray. And um, Diane, come here. They want to pray over us. Thank you all. And um, God's got it. And he don't need me to keep this train running. And all we need is Jesus. So we're going to be all right.